Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for coming out. I'm Brad Wilson with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton University. Uh, today, we uh, have one uh, in our series of Alpheus T. Mason lectures in constitutional law and political thought, the quest for freedom, uh, which brings eminent scholars, jurists, public officials, and intellectuals to Princeton. It's named in honor of uh, Princeton's fourth McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence, Alpheus Mason, and the lectures are designed to deepen our understanding of American ideals and institutions. Uh, the series continues the work of Professor Mason, who dedicated his life to the study of public law and American political thought. Uh, this series is made possible uh, through the generosity of a Princeton alumnus, John Hansel, class of 48, who was a student of Professor Mason. Uh, today, I'm, I'm so pleased to introduce to you uh, our speaker, Jean Yarbrough, who's Professor of Government and the Gary M. Pendy Senior Professor of Social Sciences at Bowdoin College, where she teaches courses in political philosophy and American political thought. She graduated from Cedar Crest College and received her master's and her doctorate from the New School for Social Research in New York. She's the author of American Virtues, Thomas Jefferson on the Character of a Free People. And uh, Jean recently edited The Essential Jefferson, which was published by Hackett Press just this year. Uh, she's authored numerous articles in American political thought and public policy questions, as well as other topics in political philosophy. She's a regular contributor to the Claremont Review of Books, and her articles have appeared in the Review of Politics, Journal of Politics, The American Scholar, Polity, City Journal, Policy Review, and The Public Interest, among others. Uh, she's on the editorial board of the Review of Politics and also on the board of the journal Polity. Uh, Professor Yarbrough is currently finishing a book on Theodore Roosevelt and the progressive critique of the founders. She has uh, twice been awarded uh, a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities most recently in 2006. Uh, uh, Professor Yarbrough will be speaking today on uh, rewriting uh, the founding, uh, Theodore Roosevelt as historian. So please join me in welcoming Professor Yarbrough. Thank you. It's, uh, can you hear me? I may not talk into the... Uh, this, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I'm going to talk uh, to you today about Theodore Roosevelt as an historian, which is to say during the early years of his multifaceted career. Um, and for if there are any undergraduates in the audience or even graduate students, I'd like to point. Uh, I'd like to begin by pointing out that when Roosevelt was an undergraduate at Harvard, he had a grand total of one course in history. But he did not feel that that disqualified him from immediately launching himself into a into a secondary career as an historian. So you shouldn't be too deterred if you feel that you don't know everything. God knows he didn't. Um, what did he major 
uh, natural sciences, um, which I think will you'll, uh, will become clearer as I go through some of my presentation. Um, uh, his first history was published at the ripe age of 23. He had started it while he was an undergraduate at Harvard, and it was a study of the Naval War of 1812. Then, during the next decade or so, he published three, more bi three, three biographies, A History of New York, a book of hero tales, which he edited with Henry Cabot Lodge, and his what he regarded as his magnum opus from 1889 to 1895, uh, the six-volume um, study called The Winning of the West. And I will be focusing today on three of these books, and I will be taking them in the order in which he wrote them. And they are his first book after... Um, uh, the Naval War of 1812, Thomas Hart Benton, followed um, immediately by a study of Gouverneur Morris, uh, who was a delegate to the Federal Convention. And then uh, third, uh, I'll conclude with a discussion of the winning of the West. My emphasis in each of the three books is on the question of expansion and the doctrine of manifest destiny as Roosevelt understood it. Okay, here goes. On the strength of the Naval War of 1812, which had run through three editions in one year, Roosevelt was commissioned to prepare a biography of the Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton. Unlike the Naval War, which Roosevelt had spent two years as an undergraduate and as a law student at Columbia, laboriously researching, and which he confessed was so dry that it made a dictionary seem like light reading, Roosevelt dashed off his first biography in five action-packed months while cowpunching in the Dakota Badlands in the spring of 1886. In a letter written to Henry Cabot Lodge, who helped get him the commission, T.R. confided that he had been forced to evolve his subject by his own, in, from his own inner consciousness. He knew nothing at all about Benton's life after he left the Senate in 1850, not even the date of his death. Being a truthful man, Roosevelt pro preferred to have as he put it, some foundation of fact, no matter how slender, on which to build the airy and arabesque superstructure of my fancy, especially since he was writing a history. Light on facts, the biography is of interest less for what it says about its subject than for the political views of the author. <coughs> In the early 19th century, Missouri, the state um, Benton represented in the Senate, marked the extreme western outpost of the United States, and Benton became the spokesman for what Roosevelt called the western and ultra-American view. Above all, this meant a defense of manifest destiny, which, said T.R., reduced to its simplest terms was that it was our manifest destiny to swallow up all the land of all the adjoining nations who were too weak to stand with us. This included the territories of the original Indian inhabitants, the Spanish lands to the west and southwest, the British possessions to the north. 
It would have included French Louisiana if that territory had not already been obtained through purchase. Roosevelt conceded that the root of this doctrine was, again in his words, a belligerent, indeed piratical way of looking at territory. But he embraced it just the same, and Edmund Morris calls T.R.'s treatment of the subject inspiring. Manifest destiny meant first that the frontiersman, in his relentless drive forward, would continue to encroach upon Indian lands. As a Westerner, Benton took the frontier view of the Indian question, introducing into the Senate measures to remove the southern and western Indian tribes from the immediate reach of the white man. Benton tried to carry out this policy kindly and humanely, but inevitably it led to much injustice and wrong. Still, Roosevelt was convinced that Whatever its shortcomings, the Western approach was preferable to the so-called humanitarian or Eastern view. The Indians occupied more than 60 million acres of desirable territory and harried the white men who coveted their lands. It was, he put it, out of the question to let them remain where they were, since these sovereign tribes did not come under the jurisdiction of the states where they lived nor could they be brought up to the level of the Westerner civilization quickly enough to accommodate themselves to their changed circumstances. Even the Cherokees, and I am 132nd Cherokee, um, the most civilized of the tribes, could not be allowed to stay. Although it was a cruel grief and wrong to take them from their homes, the only alternative was to take away most of their land and gradually accord them the rights of citizenship. But the times were not ripe for such assimilation in Benton's day, and, Roosevelt added, unfortunately, they still weren't. Whether the Republican statesmen, Western or otherwise, had a moral obligation to try to overcome the prejudices of the prejudices against assimilation, given that manifest destiny carried to its logical conclusion meant that in the future there would be no lands left for removal was a question that Roosevelt did not ask. Indeed, warming to his subject, Roosevelt went on to condemn as, again in his words, maudlin nonsense protests about the, in, the government's treatment of the Indians. Even though the United States had purchased the land from them, the simple truth, as he called it, was that the Indians had, again in his words, no possible title to the lands Americans took, not even that of occupancy, and at most were in possession merely by virtue of having butchered the previous occupants. Here you can see he gets into trouble because if that's their only claim to rule, then how could it be so unjust to have taken the lands from them? But he never bothered to resolve that problem. Although Roosevelt was willing to grant that the removal of the Indians was harsh and caused a certain amount of temporary suffering, he thought it was better for the nation as a whole. Moreover, he insisted that the Western policy of removal was also more just and merciful for the Indians than the utopian schemes put forth by what he called the sentimental philanthropists. 
Roosevelt's last comment suggests that he saw only two alternatives, either a full-throated defensive manifest destiny or a sentimental Eastern humanitarianism, which he despised. In this, the fledgling historian was too quick to dismiss the legitimate concerns of some of America's early statesmen about westward expansion. And I'm not going to bother with Thomas Jefferson because Roosevelt paid no attention to him. John Jay, for one, feared that these frontiersmen would sink into barbarism, jeopardizing the Republican experiment. Alexander Hamilton, for another, worried about how far Republican institutions could reasonably be extended, especially in the early years when the federal government was so weak. Their more cautious approach to westward expansion could not simply be lumped together with those, in his words, foolish sentimentalists uh, who blamed the white man for everything while ignoring the difficulties under which he labored and the outrages that he suffered. Turning his attention from the Indians to the southwest, Roosevelt cast the struggle between the English-speaking settlers and the Mexicans in stark Darwinian terms. It was both inevitable and desirable that these raw, pushing, brawling Westerners should covet the lands occupied by peoples too weak to resist. In Texas, the Mexicans proved no match for the frontiersmen who, as he wrote, flushed with the pride of strength and self-confidence, were utterly careless of the rights of others, looking upon the possessions of all weaker races as simply their natural prey. The Mexicans were absolutely unfit to govern themselves, much less rule over a warlike, reckless, and overbearing uh, the overbearing Texans. Whatever international morality in the abstract might dictate, it was out of the question that Texans should continue to, as he put it, submit to the mastery of the weaker race which they were supplanting. Expanding on this last point, Roosevelt maintained that the standards of highly civilized nations could not be applied to the frontier. In saying this, he did not mean merely that allowances had to be made for necessity or that moral principles, in particular those set out in the Declaration and to which the founders, the signers, had pledged their sacred honor, should be prudently applied according to the circumstances. Rather, Roosevelt believed that justice was relative to the stage of historical development. This was a contest between two races in which Americans like Sam Houston had not advanced beyond the old world Viking stage of development and the Mexicans lagged even further behind. As Houston said, just to give you an idea of what this old world Viking stage means, Houston was um, reputed to have said, we cheated the Indians, the Mexicans were no better, so therefore we could cheat them too. History alone provided the standard by which the two races should be judged. The only comparison was with how other peoples had acted at similar stages of development. And I want to point out this is the Viking stage of development. 
As a Westerner, Benton's vision of manifest destiny went beyond conquering the more backward or, West, or, or weaker races and laying clans, claims to their land. Where American expansion was concerned, the senator from Missouri yielded to no one, including the civilized British. Although Roosevelt called Benton's patriotism violent and aggressive, he clearly thought that Benton was right in refusing to compromise with Britain over the Oregon Territory. No foot of soil to which we had any title in the Northwest should have been given up, Roosevelt thundered. We were the people who could use it best, and we ought to have taken it all. But in this case, the rationale was different. The extension northward of the American boundary into what is now Western Canada was at least as much for the sake of the settlers, who were, of course, English-speaking people, as it was for American national greatness. And with a bow to the Monroe Doctrine, to which he would, later as president, add his own muscular corollary, T.R. argued that it was not in the interest of the Western Hemisphere that any European nation should exercise colonial domination over extensive territory between the two oceans. By right, he said, we should have shown ourselves ready to make prompt appeal to the sword whenever it became necessary in the last resort. Nevertheless, Roosevelt conceded that the time to have acted was before the territories were settled. It was too late to do so in T.R.'s day, but Benton, with all his bluster and partisan maneuvering, had it right. Rather than compromise with Britain as the Whigs proposed, America should have claimed all the lands in the Oregon Territory, 5440 or fight, and sent armed citizens to occupy it. Claimed with a, uh, faced with a fait accompli, the British would have been in no position to resist and the United States could have claimed the entire Northwest as its prize. Roosevelt made no secret of his disappointment that national policy for this region was shaped largely by the wealthy and educated classes of the Northeast, who were, as he put it, more cautious and timid when it came to the prospect of foreign wars and had, again, never felt much of the spirit which made the West stretch out hungrily for new lands. Yet on the issue of manifest destiny, the contrast with Lincoln, whom Roosevelt elsewhere in this same biography hailed as the greatest man of the, of the 19th century, is instructive. From the outset, Lincoln saw that the insatiable greed for new lands was inseparable from the desire of the slaveholders to expand their empire. Lincoln, therefore, saw no reason for the United States to annex Texas after it became independent from Mexico and did not worry about a possible alliance between the Lone Star Republic and Great Britain, especially since the latter had embraced emancipation. Unlike the Scots-Irishmen who dominated Southern politics, Lincoln believed that slavery, not England, posed the greatest danger to the perpetuation of Republican self-government. In an impassioned speech on the floor of the House of Representatives, he condemned the Mexican War as unconstitutional and immoral. And after it was over, Lincoln backed the Wilmot Proviso, which, had it passed, would have barred slavery from all the territories acquired in the Mexican War. Later, 
After the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Dred Scott decision added fuel to the fire, Lincoln sarcastically credited young America Democrats, led by Stephen Douglas, with having, quote, invented manifest destiny, destiny and challenged their claim that they acted out of an impulse to extend the sphere of freedom. By contrast, Roosevelt, once again speaking in his own name, he did that a lot, um, insisted that Western support for manifest destiny was not fundamentally about slavery, and he could offer Benton's opposition to the Mexican War to strengthen his case. At the same time, he at least avoided the hypocrisy of the Democrats by emphasizing that what drove both the slaveholder and non-slaveholder alike was their insatiable, quote, greed for the conquest of new lands. The men of the West sincerely believed that they were, in Roosevelt's words, created the heirs of the earth, end quote, or at least of North America, and were prepared to risk any danger to lay claim to their heritage. Yet this difference of motivation, the um, uh, uh, young America Democrats claiming they're only doing it for the sake of freedom and Roosevelt insisting, no, no, it's just pure and simple land hunger. Uh, this difference of motivation notwithstanding, Roosevelt, like his ancestors before the Civil War, basically sided with the Democrats of that day, albeit Western and Union Democrats like Benton, rather than with the Whigs and their Republican successors, who saw clearly the connection between manifest destiny and the spread of slavery. With the benefit of hindsight, Roosevelt failed to appreciate, as Lincoln did at the time, that the logic of manifest destiny, with its talk of race mastery, would lead many Southern Democrats to choose the extension of slavery into Mexico and Central America over the preservation of their Republican institutions. Schooled in the doctrine of progress, Roosevelt, like the young America Democrats Lincoln mocked, took for granted that the inevitable outcome of manifest destiny would be the spread of freedom. Indeed, on closer inspection, Roosevelt's celebration of manifest destiny is even more troubling. For what kind of freedom is it that refuses to condemn the Westerners' belief that the stronger race has a right to conquer the weaker and treat their possessions as natural prey? This is the language of Cleon, the Athenian dem demagogue. It's the language of Nietzsche. It is out of keeping with the principles, that, with, the, uh, with the men whose principles Roosevelt claims above all to admire, Washington and Lincoln. Furthermore, it is not clear how Roosevelt's depiction of the Western position differs fundamentally from the Southern Democratic defense of slavery. For if the Westerners viewed the Mexicans as a weaker race, what would prevent them from throwing their lot in with the Southerners who used precisely these arguments to justify their expansion into Mexico and beyond to enslave those whom they considered inferior? In the end, Benton pulled his punches. Although he himself was a slaveholder, he took his stand against the South, opposing the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Dred Scott decision, though by this time he was out of the Senate. Still, there was nothing in principle to keep other, other Westerners spurred on by greed and viewing their enemies as racially inferior from sympathizing with the South 
and especially in southwest Missouri, where my ancestors hail from, so I can say these things, they did. Roosevelt, of course, hated slavery, but the language and arguments he used to defend Manifest Destiny, resting on assumptions about moral superiority and the different moral standards that applied at various stages of civilization, bear a striking resemblance to the arguments earlier advanced by the defenders of slavery. Okay. I'm going to turn now to... Um, his second history, and this is a study of Gouverneur Morris, uh, um, which was prepared for the same American Statesman series. Um, Morris was a New Yorker who served as a, Pen a Pennsylvania delegate to the Federal Convention, and he had a, um, uh, as that uh, uh, um, uh, affiliation might suggest an extremely national, indeed cosmopolitan, understanding of what his um, uh, of uh, the place of America. Um, he served as minister to France from 1792 to 1794, and he was then appointed in New York to fill an unexpired term in the Senate in 1800, the year that Jefferson. Uh, came to power as president. He supported Jefferson's uh, Louisiana Purchase, but he became so disgusted with the incompetence of, that's a great word these days, the incompetence of the uh, Jeffersonians that he threw his lot in with northern secessionists who preferred to break up the Union rather than remain under the control of the feckless Virginians. Um, this is, so, of course, Rose, Roosevelt's um, uh, appraisal of Morris was, as you might expect, mixed. But I'm not going to go through all of um, uh, all the interesting things that Roosevelt has to say about Gouverneur Morris, um, and I'm just simply going to uh, cut to the chase. Um, a far-seeing statesman and patriot, Morris nevertheless had one sec narrow sectional blind spot. Like many of the Eastern Federalists, he was basically satisfied with the present size of the United States and saw no need for Western expansion. At the convention, Morris sought to convince the delegates to commit the criminal folly, these are Roosevelt's words, the criminal folly of keeping the West in permanent subordination to the Atlantic states. To his everlasting discredit, he repeatedly insisted that the compacting states should reserve the right to place conditions on future Western states so that they might retain a preponderance of power. He warned of the dangers of power shifting to the most ignorant members of the population, that would be the frontiersmen, who could be counted on to oppose all sensible proposals, especially those connected with property. What Morris failed to see, according to Roosevelt, was that in providing for future states to enter into the Union on an equal footing with the original states, the Constitution avoided the mistake of the Roman Empire, which treated its provinces as subordinates. Article 4, Section 3, imposing no qualifications on, or restrictions on new states 
which Mars opposed and about which even the Federalist has precious little to say, proved one of its most significant provisions. Of course, the Federalist doesn't say much about it for the simple reason that the authors of the Federalist are trying to persuade people who think a large republic won't work um, that it will, so they don't want to call attention to what might be an even larger republic. So if if the people don't have in mind all the territories that are lurking out there, that's just fine. The idea is to get the 13 states to agree. And so they sort of, they, it, there's a, just one part of one Federalist paper that takes up this provision. Um, but Roosevelt, looking back on this, sees that this is really a critical um, uh, uh, contribution uh, that the Americans have made because in allowing the states to come in on an equal basis, they don't make the mistake that the Romans made in which all of the provinces are subordinate to, uh, to Rome. And having just returned from a two-year stint in the Dakotas, Roosevelt knew firsthand the importance of an ever-expanding West that stood on a par with the seaboard states. He had tentatively explored this theme in Benton, and it was to this subject that he would return again in his most ambitious historical study, The Winning of the West. And that's what I'm going to focus on now for the remainder of my time. At the time when Roosevelt first began to think about what he called his magnum opus, his political career had stalled. After winning election to the New York Assembly while still at the Columbia Law School, he had fled to the Dakota Badlands in 1884 following the death of his first wife. Returning to New York in 1886, Roosevelt threw himself into a three-way three race for mayor, losing to the Democratic candidate, Abram S. Hewitt. It was suddenly unclear whether Roosevelt had a political future. With his successful naval history and two biographies under his belt, he wondered whether he could write a, quote, first-class work that would win him respect as an historian. His was a history in the tradition of gifted amateurs like George Bancroft and Francis Parkman, a tradition that was quickly passing from the scene to make way for more academic, professional historians. Um, Roosevelt dedicated the winning of the West to Francis Parkman. Like Parkman, Roosevelt felt a kinship with his subject because he too had lived on the frontier. And, like Parkman again, Roosevelt was interested in the big picture. In a sweeping first chapter, which his biographer Edmund Morris praises, I'm sorry to keep coming back to Morris, but his judgments are, well, worthy of pointing out. Um, uh, Edmund Morris praises for its erudition and breadth of mind. Roosevelt took note of a great period of race expansion by the English-speaking peoples over the last 300 years as they spread out into Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, Canada, and the United States. This race expansion it was itself the result of earlier historical developments, which could be traced back to the half-mythical exploits of the Germanic tribes.
of, and this is in the first chapter. It's really, it, he sets the whole thing up. It's, it's quite a first chapter. Of all the European peoples, only the Germans were able to resist being absorbed into the all-conquering Roman Empire and to retain their distinctive laws, language, and habits of thought. In time, these Germanic tribes vanquished most of Europe, but they failed to impose their culture on the conquered peoples of the South and eventually were absorbed by them. Only in England did the Teutonic sea rovers succeed in slaying, driving off, or assimilating the native population and imposing their customs, creed, and laws. So what you have is these Teutonic tribes maintaining somehow the purity of their culture best in England, so that England becomes the carrier and transmitter of the Teutonic legacy. Only in England did the Teutonic sea rovers succeed in slaying, driving off, or assimilating the native population and imposing their customs, creed, and laws. As a result, England, and here I quote, was destined to be of more importance in the future of the Germanic peoples than all their continental possessions, original and acquired, put together. In time, Roosevelt continues in this chapter. Uh, the Germanic people of England mixed their blood with that of the Celts and Scandinavians, producing a distinct English nationality that has spread around the globe, spawning further variations and adaptations. Roosevelt hastens to assure the reader that this proud racial inheritance is, and here I'm quoting, not foreign to American history. The vast movement by which this continent was conquered and peopled cannot be rightly understood if considered solely by itself. It was the crowning and greatest achievement in a series of mighty movements, and it must be taken in connection with them. Its true significance will be lost unless we grasp, however roughly, the past race history of the nations that took part therein." End quote. The winning of the West is simply the latest and most glorious chapter in this drama of the transmission of the Teutonic English seed, pitting two great branches of the English-speaking peoples against each other. Now that the French have been evicted from the New World, it comes down to the last great battle of the giants, the Brits versus the Americans. And following the victorious Americans as they battle the native Indian tribes for control of the continent. Having established the race importance of westward expansion, Roosevelt turns to the events themselves. Um, and here there's a great deal of narrative in my paper, which I will uh, not go into. Uh, but suffice it to say that the winning of the West begins by looking at the territory between the Alleghenies and the Mississippi River. And Roosevelt starts out by saying that when the Revolutionary War broke out, the War for Independence from Britain, um, uh, the American border was for all intents and purposes at the Alleghenies. And by the time the war ended, um, because of the success of the frontiersmen in pushing forward and establishing colonies, the effective border of the United States was the Mississippi River. 
That is a huge chunk of territory, and that is principally what the first half of the six volumes of the Winning of the West focuses on. The Winning of the West not being what we think of as the West, but this period, this space in between the Alleghenies, principally in, uh, in the Southwest. And again, the Southwest isn't Arizona. The Southwest here refers to uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. Tennessee being the extension of North Carolina and Kentucky being the westward extension of Virginia. Unlike most histories of the revolutionary era, which tended to focus on the war between the British and the American colonies along the seaboard, Roosevelt tells the story of a second, lesser-known wilderness war between the backwoodsmen and the various Indian tribes whose savage raids received the quiet blessing of the British. But the winning of the West, that is, the war for the lands between the Alleghenies and the Mississippi, was only a stage. After the Revolution, not even the mighty Mississippi could restrain the advance of this, in his words, vigorous and aggressive race as they continued their conquest of the continent. As in Thomas Hart Benton, the winning of the West makes much out of the way that the frontier helped to forge a distinctive Western and characteristically American character. Though in this book, Roosevelt emphasizes the differences between the settlements of the Southwest and those in the Northwest. The Southern outposts, the one in Kentucky and two in Tennessee, were established by backwoodsmen from Virginia and North Carolina acting on their own initiative with no help from the government. Life on the frontier appealed to and reinforced their unbridled individualism, where, as in Israel of old, each man did what was best in his own eyes. By contrast, the settlement of the Northwest occurred later and sprang directly from the action of the federal government, assisted by the regular army. Unlike the territories of Kentucky and Tennessee, the Northwest remained largely unexplored before the war. Thus, Roosevelt can say, the Northwest played no part in our country as it originally stood. It had no portion in the Declaration of Independence. It did not revolt. It was conquered. It is true that many of the newly independent states laid claim to the territory, the Northwest Territory, under their old colonial charters, but Roosevelt did not regard these claims as substantial as long as the lands remained unoccupied. At the end of the war, the British surrendered their territorial claims to the United States, and Congress set about getting the individual states to cede their claims to the nation. Recognizing that the issue could not be decided by a consideration of abstract rights, Congress appealed to the state's patriotism and common sense. Virginia, which held the most substantial claims, ceded her territory to the United States in 1784. The others followed suit. In every case, Congress prudently accepted the lands as a gift from the states with conditions instead of claiming them as her unconditional right. It then applied its collective power to survey and dispose of the territory, thereby averting the problem of contested property titles, which were rampant in the, Midwest, in the Southwest. 
Most important, Congress in 1787 drew up the Northwest Ordinance, providing for the government of these territories. Roosevelt rightly regarded the Northwest Ordinance enacted by the Confederation Congress and reenacted by the First Congress of the United States as one of the most important of the American state papers, on a par with the Declaration, the Constitution, Washington's Farewell Address, the Emancipation Proclamation, and Lincoln's Second Inaugural. For one thing, the Northwest Ordinance reversed the relationship between the original 13 states and the Union, laying the foundation for a more perfect Union. Unlike the Articles of Confederation, which was a creation of the states, Roosevelt argued that the states carved out of the Northwest Territory were the creatures of the nation acquired through conquest and by compact declared forever inseparable from it. Again, the, uh, 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 an argument that will certainly diminish the states' rights claims of the South in the Civil War. At the same time, the Northwest Ordinance provided that these territories, when they became states, would enter the Union on an equal footing with the original states, thereby establishing the precedent in the Constitution for how to deal with future westward expansion. And finally, in keeping with its more collectivist approach, Congress forever banned slavery in the Northwest Territory, which was not the case in Tennessee and uh, Kentucky. Although Roosevelt had originally planned to cover the history of the entire Southwest, including the annexation of Texas, the Mexican War, from which the United States acquired New Mexico, Arizona, and California, as well as the gold rush, by 1896, six, seven years into his project, he was back in the thick of politics and had to wind it up. The winning of the West effectively concludes with General Wayne's victory over the Northwest Indians at Fallen Timbers in 1794. So he's dealt with 30 years in six volumes. And then he, but you can imagine this would have gone on for 20 volumes if he had continued at this pace. The Louisiana Purchase, together with the expeditions of Lewis and Clark and Zebulon Pike, hastily tacked on, bring the narrative to an abrupt close. The winning of the West was an immediate success, bringing Roosevelt the professional recognition he sought. After the first two of the six volumes appeared, Francis Parkman wrote him an appreciative letter. After all, it was dedicated to him. And the work as a whole received generally positive reviews, including one from Frederick Jackson Turner. Yet, on closer inspection, the history introduces three themes that are not only foreign, but antithetical to the principles of the founders whom Roosevelt claimed most to admire. The most striking, and then these are the three points, and the, or my three objections, or the way in which Roosevelt rewrites the history uh, of uh, the country um, to shift emphasis away from the concerns of the founders. The most striking difference is the weight Roosevelt attaches to race. From its opening pages, the winning of the West casts westward expansion as a grand racial epic, though Roosevelt is hardly precise in his use of the term race. 
at various points in the narrative, he uses race in at least five different ways. First, and most obviously, it refers to the basic color groups, especially red and white, though occasionally yellow and black. But as the opening chapter suggests, Roosevelt also links race with language, as in the English-speaking race. In this sense, Roosevelt sometimes refers to Americans as part of the English race because they speak English. Third, Roosevelt uses race interchangeably, both with people and nationality. So this, in the most benign way, it could be what we would say the American nation, he would call the American race. Uh, but the chief components of this are language, okay, customs, creed, culture, and then this one, blood. In his context, Roosevelt speaks in this context, Roosevelt speaks frequently of a distinctive American race, but here especially his use is not consistent. Although he places great emphasis on blood or stock when discussing the American race, his narrative makes clear that there is no one blood that flows in American veins. Along the seaboard, English blood predominates, but in the Southwest, Scots-Irish Presbyterians prevail. Not only did they have no English blood, but they had no love for England and her vaunted liberties. In still other places, Roosevelt uses race to mean ethnic groups or tribes. So he describes the Scots-Irish as a race and the Cherokees as a race. Finally, he occasionally uses it so loosely that he calls the people of Kentucky a race. Given this imprecision, it might seem that the best strategy is simply to ignore the term and focus on the history. But on reflection, I think there are two reasons why that's too simple. First, um, uh, for all its sloppy terminology, the winning of the West abounds with invidious racial distinctions and racial judgments. The Indians are a weaker and wholly alien race. The Negro belongs to one of the inferior races. The French are an alien race, utterly unsuited for liberty as the Americans understand it. Elsewhere, Roosevelt warns against the dangers of conquest by, quote, barbarians of low racial characteristics, notably the Turks and Tartars. Even more important, one of the central themes of the winning of the West is the necessity of race expansion and race supremacy for national greatness. In a long digression, prompted by General St. Clair's humiliating defeat at the hands of the Miamis and the Shawnees, Roosevelt insists that, quote, only a mighty race in its vigorous and masterful prime, end quote, can extend its sway over the weaker and alien races. What he has in mind is not merely the conquest of their territory, but following the example of the Germanic tribes in England, which he'd set up already in the opening chapter, the removal or annihilation of these Indian tribes. As we have seen, assimilation was not for Roosevelt a serious alternative, both because the Indians were a weaker race and because they were separated from the whites by, quote, untold ages. 
Although Roosevelt elsewhere in the winning of the West had expressed his admiration for the Northwest Ordinance, he says nothing about its provision in joining the government to act with utmost good faith in its dealings with the Indians, declaring that their property, rights, and liberty should never be invaded or disturbed unless in a just and lawful war, and urging that laws founded on justice and humanity be made for the purpose of preventing wrongs done to them from being done to them. On the contrary, he makes clear his disagreement with those governmental authorities who sought to do what he dismissed as strict justice to the Indians and who carried out their treaty, their treaty obligations with, again, his words, scrupulous fairness. More than once, Secretary of War Henry Knox becomes the object of Roosevelt's scorn for having advised President Washington to observe the treaties uh, in an effort to conciliate the Indians and attach them to the United States. Roosevelt can barely contain his sarcasm at Knox's suggestion that a philosophic mind would take pleasure in imparting to the Indians a knowledge of cultiva cultivation and the arts, thus preserving and civilizing rather than exterminating them. Such large, though vague, benef beneficence shows no real knowledge of the Indians, who are many centuries away from being civilized. In contrast to Knox, Roosevelt believes the most far-seeing and high-minded statesman is the one who can grasp the race importance of the conquest and settlement of the continent. In another chapter on the Indian Wars, Roosevelt expands on this theme. Whenever two races at different stages of civilization clash, the only way to resolve their differences is by force. War with savages is the most ultimately righteous of all wars, though it is also likely to be the most terrible and inhuman. The fierce, rude settler who drives the savage from his land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him. This is true not only in America, but all over the world. Far more important than the petty territorial squabbles between the civilized nations of Europe are the merciless wars that took place between Boer and Zulu, Cossack and Tartar, New Zealander and Maori, ensuring that, quote, America, Australia, and Siberia should pass out of the hands of their red, black, and yellow aboriginal owners and become the heritage of the dominant world races, end quote. How this was accomplished, whether by purchase, treaty, or most likely war, was ultimately of little consequence. No treaty was binding in perpetuity, and Roosevelt leaves the reader in no doubt that breaking a treaty to advance the claims of civilization and the dominant race is, quote, not only expedient, but imperative and honorable. From a race standpoint, all that matters is that the land was won. Quote, it is indeed a warped, perverse, and silly morality which would forbid a course of conquest that has turned whole continents into seats of mighty and flourishing civilized nations. 
all men of sane and wholesome thought must dismiss with impatient contempt the plea that these continents should be reserved for the use of scattered savage tribes, whose life was but a few degrees less meaningless, squalid, and ferocious than those of the wild beasts with whom they held joint ownership. End quote. But Roosevelt was not content merely to insist that the end, race expansion, justified the means, removal or annihilation of the aboriginal peoples. As in Benton, he even tries to excuse the means by arguing that the savages and frontiersmen who defeated them could not be held to the same rules of morality as civilized nations. Assimilation works for the English and the Scandinavians, the Scots-Irish and the French Huguenots, who mingle their blood to create a new American race. It will not work with the Indians, because at best they have reached only the savage stage of development, and besides, they are a weaker and wholly alien race. Here, the conquest of Britain in the fifth century where invaders largely annihilated the local population, provides the model. Fortunately, Roosevelt thought, the men who did, quote, the rough pioneer work of civilization in barbarous lands, end quote, understood this instinctively, and certainly better than those statesmen back home, whose abstract morality and philosophic minds provided no guidance on the frontier. Second point of difference, something I'm going to call the founding. If by the founding we mean the deliberate attempt by the framers to establish Republican government on the principles of the social compact spelled out in the Declaration, Roosevelt cannot be enrolled among its supporters. Although he admired the founders for their practicality and common sense, the histories make clear that well before he became a progressive, his moral compass pointed in a direction quite different from theirs. The winning of the West pays lip service to the Declaration of Independence, including it among the great state papers, but only once in the thousand-plus pages does Roosevelt refer to its moral principles. The author, and here I'll tell you what it is, the author is dismayed to discover that three years after the Declaration, Creoles in Indiana, in Illinois, have sentenced a slave to be burned and hanged for witchcraft, according to the laws and with at least the acquiescence of a Catholic priest. But Roosevelt is here using the Declaration as a rhetorical weapon to attack the French and Catholics not to affirm the universality and eternal rightness of its principles. The suspicion that Roosevelt's invocation of the Declaration is merely rhetorical gains strength when we consider that, unlike Lincoln, Roosevelt does not mention its principles in connection with slavery. When Roosevelt condemns slavery as a moral evil, and he does, he calls it an offense against, uh, against humanity and Christianity, but not a violation of natural right. This is because, in contrast to the founders, Roosevelt does not see nature as a source of moral principle. His understanding of nature is derived from science, and here comes the natural science and the Darwinian principles, rather than from philosophy. If nature teaches anything, it is the survival of the fittest, viewed collectively in terms of race. To look to nature for moral guidance is to fall prey to sentimentality and useless abstraction. Roosevelt repeatedly warns against taking one's bearings from abstract rights or abstract morality. History, not nature, provides the standard of right. 
Throughout The Winning of the West, Roosevelt emphasizes that human beings can only be judged by the standards appropriate to their stage of development. Most of the Indian tribes remained stuck at the lowest, savage stage of development, centuries behind the white man. A few have progressed to the barbarous stage. The backwoodsmen, who themselves regressed to a stage of semi-barbarism, cannot be judged by contemporary standards. They should not be held to the same moral standards as their more civilized brethren. Quote, all that can be asked is that they be judged as other wilderness conquerors, as other slayers and quellers of savage people are judged. End quote. So, although Roosevelt nowhere explicitly rejected the moral foundation of the American Republic in natural rights. His assertion that people should be judged by standards suitable to their historical stage of development and racial characteristics, in this case the low Dutch sea thieves, is incompatible with the founder's understanding of natural right. On a more practical level, in other words here, turning from the, const the Declaration to the Constitution, uh, Roosevelt found much to praise in the Constitution. But the winning of the West tacitly emphasizes the limits of reflection and choice, one of the great phrases in the opening of the Federalist Papers in Federalist I. For all their deliberation, the statesmen who framed the Constitution and filled the seats of government in the early years of the Republic failed to grasp the signal importance of the West or to foresee how rapidly and completely it would be subjugated. Far greater than the events in Philadelphia was the unplanned movement of the pioneers, which began with Daniel Boone in 1769 and ended a mere 75 years later on the Pacific coast. Compared with this, quote, all other questions save those of the preservation of the Union itself and the emancipation of blacks have been of subordinate importance. In contrast, then, to the founding, the winning of the West is primarily a tale of conquest and only, second and only secondarily about compact. And even then, Roosevelt tends to play down the importance of deliberation, focusing on the racial makeup of the pioneers. That frontier leaders like Andrew Jackson, Sam Houston, Davy Crockett, James Robertson, and James Campbell were descended from Scots-Irish Presbyterian stock is at times almost sufficient to explain their success. In his enthusiasm to establish the, the backwoodsman's ra um, racial pedigree, Roosevelt elsewhere, this is marvelous, turns the Celts into honorary Saxons. I'm sure they would be pleased. <laughs> Linking them through time to the mythical Anglo-Saxon and ultimately Teutonic tradition of, of ancient liberty. Roosevelt devotes an entire chapter to the Watauga Commonwealth, which in 1772 drew up a written constitution. This was the first ever adopted west of the Alleghenies and the first anywhere by American-born free men. But in calling their primitive legislature, and I, here I'm not sure how to pronounce this, a Witanagamot, uh, Roosevelt suggests implausibly that the frontiersmen were somehow reaching back to their medieval Anglo-Saxon past. In another chapter on the Cumberland Settlement, which, is based on, which based its written constitution on these Watauga articles, Roosevelt makes the connection to the Anglo-Saxon tradition even more explicit. 
Describing the settlers' efforts to set up a self-governing commonwealth in 1780, Roosevelt gushes, their compact was thus in some sort of an unconscious reproduction of the laws and customs of the old-time court leet, profoundly modified to suit the peculiar needs of backwoods life, the intensely democratic temper of the pioneers, and above all, the military necessities of their existence. That Roosevelt discovers the roots of American liberty in the medieval Saxon past is perhaps not surprising, as Edward Augustus Freeman, whose text was required reading in the only history course Roosevelt took at Harvard, and who edited the series in which Roosevelt published one of his later histories, um, subscribed to the germ theory of liberty. So did John Burgess, Roosevelt's former law professor at Columbia. According to this view, Free Institute and Montesquieu talks about it as well. According to this view, free institutions could be traced back to the Teutonic genius for self-government, the germ of which was transmitted to the Germanic peoples of England, the Anglo-Saxons, and thence to America. So if you want to find the roots of our wonderful system of government, you have to go back to the medieval German forests via, in this case, England. Um, uh, in suggesting that the Scots-Irish pioneers unconsciously recalled their ancient Saxon, even though they're not Saxons, heritage, Roosevelt emphasizes the frontiersmen's racial memory over their capacity for deliberate choice. And then finally, and quickly, uh, not only does Roosevelt look to history rather than nature to discover a standard by which to judge the actions of the pioneers, but he also shifts the narrative focus of the story. So it's a different narrative from the narrative of the founding. Race, the founding, and now a different narrative story. Whereas the founders had emphasized the struggle for rights and debated what institutional arrangements would best secure them, Roosevelt shows little interest in these matters. Instead of charting the progress of liberty, he fashions a narrative of progress, understood primarily as the growth and development of a distinctive American race. This narrative does not begin in 1787 with the Constitution or 1776 with the Declaration. The story begins in 1769 with Daniel Boone. But the events he relates are meant to be understood in the context of a larger narrative of race expansion by the English-speaking people, which has been going on for 300 years, a point he emphasizes again in his treatment of Oliver Cromwell. Against this background of racial destiny, the founding narrative of the progress of liberty recedes in significance. Although nature no longer serves as a standard of right, it is by no means absent in the winning of the West. Rather, Roosevelt reinterprets nature in harsh Darwinian terms that then become part of the narrative. Nature no longer serves as a standard by which to judge history, but in this sense is folded into it. The mighty frontiersmen vanquished their foes. One by one, the Indian tribes fa fail, the Spanish recede, the French sell out, the British give up. The fittest race survives and flourishes. Indeed, Roosevelt makes it clear that the American people have no choice but to expand. Territorial expansion is a process as natural as it is desirable. It is part of the order of our political nature. 
Running alongside this narrative of growth and expansion is a second theme that charts the progress of civilization. This is the movement captured in its earliest stages by the Indians, moving from the savage state to barbarism and then finally to civilization. The mark of the savage is his inhuman love of cruelty for cruelty's sake. While civilization is distinguished by an understanding of justice as something other than the right of the stronger, as well as pity and generosity toward the weaker, by that definition, Roosevelt himself seems to fall short. Roosevelt labors under no romantic illusions about savage life. He's no Rousseauian. Indeed, he seems to take a certain pleasure in pointing out that those who sentimentalize the way of life of the Indians have usually lived beyond the reach of the tomahawk. It is difficult not to applaud his tough common sense when he insists that civilization represents progress over the savage natural state. But all too often, Roosevelt links the progress of civilization with explicitly racial themes. His is not an inclusive narrative of civilization. The Indians are to be killed or removed from the reach of an ever-expanding dominant race. He scoffs at suggestions put forth by some of America's early statesmen that civilization would mean treating the vanquished Indians with magnanimity. Sometimes even justice in the form of observing treaties seems for Roosevelt too much of a stretch. And so, even as he admired the work of Washington and Lincoln and praised the achievements of more national-minded founders, Roosevelt histories repudiated the political principles for which they stood. Race talk replaced rights at the center of the national narrative, while future greatness was judged in terms of conquest and expansion rather than the spread of liberty. At the same time, the blind, unconscious movement of a whole people supplanted the framers' emphasis on deliberation and choice, and history, rather than natural right, came to supply the moral ground on which political actions were to be judged. Thank you. We have some time for some questions. Um, do we have a microphone out there anywhere today? If not, I think for the sake of uh, recording this session, we'll have to repeat the question into the microphone here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, first of all, any students here who would like to ask a question? Oh, boo. This happened the last time I did this. Well, okay. There's, there's one uh, likely possibility. <laughs> okay. Well, can we can we get back to you? Well, I mean, it, it, it is really good to start other, with the students. Uh, Otherwise, they tend to get left shine. in the shuttle. Uh, okay. Shuffle. So, uh, do you want me to take the questions? Or would uh, Stan? Yeah. Uh, let me first start by saying that um, although I've written on Roosevelt as an historian, I am not an historian. So the technical historical questions, I probably will have to beg off. Um, Stan. Uh, first, as someone who learned about Teddy Roosevelt primarily from Edwin Morris, I just have to say, wow. Uh, this has really been an eye-opening uh, lecture for me. Uh, the second, my question is, you mentioned that uh, Roosevelt studied natural, major natural science and uh, took one course in you know, I have to ask, where did he learn his political theory? 
Um, uh, uh, the uh, Stan Brubaker wishes to say that he learned about Teddy Roosevelt from Edmund Morris, as many of us did at first. Um, uh, and my interpretation certainly takes issue with Morris. Morris is a spellbinding writer, but he has no understanding of politics and certainly no understanding of American politics. He doesn't understand the difference between Lamarckian um, evolutionary theories and Darwinian evolutionary theories. He doesn't understand the most basic points about American politics. But if you want to know where Roosevelt was on a particular day and what he was wearing and who he was dining with and even what he ate, Morris is your man. Um, uh, but his judgments are truly, uh, really, uh, uh, he sees Roosevelt as a great statesman in the, the emerging wonderful statesman. It's inspiring. It's erudite. How would he know? Um, is I, I've reviewed his work, <laughs> and um, I, I didn't think much of it from a from the standpoint of politics. Um, uh, but your question, the, the serious question, yeah. was... From whom, from whom did he learn his political theory? There are two... Yes, uh, from whom did Roosevelt? That's... Uh, uh, I have... In this book that I'm writing, I have a whole chapter on the education of Roosevelt. He had one course at Harvard um, in history. Uh, and again, he, the first book that he started with... I, I, for those of you who may teach American political thought or even American history, this was a course on Anglo-American constitutional history. And it, all of the prejudices of the age are on full display because you start with Edward Augustus Freeman. Um, well, the Bowdoin College Library has several of these little books, and I went and I looked at them. I would not, if I were teaching a course, and in fact, my husband teaches this course on um, uh, at least the American constitutional history, I would not start by going back to the ancient Greeks and then building on the Teutonic um, inheritance and eventually hundreds of pages later, finally getting into American history. But this was the whole point of what he was schooled in, was to stress the legacy of the Teutonic, the Teutonic legacy, from the Aryan legacy, Teutonic legacy, Anglo-Saxon legacy. It was a, it's, it's quite a remarkable approach to the study of Anglo- American constitutional theory. That was the only course he had at Harvard. He had a second, he took two more courses um, in the philosophy department, but they were really uh, 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 by economists, and they were by laissez-faire economists. Uh, so he read a little bit of John Stuart Mill, with whom he disagreed. Um, but he, as far as I can see, he read no more. Then he went to law school. And this is, this is harder to quite figure out. He has notebooks from his law school years, but they're incomplete. And he never mentions John Burgess. I've checked this out. I've really looked into this. He doesn't mention Burgess. But Burgess, in his 
reminiscences mentions Roosevelt and says Roosevelt came and sat in his classes right in the front row every single course took all his courses with him he was a great student he asked lots of questions he went up to him and said this is all important to me because I want to make my mark in politics now who was Burgess Burgess had studied um, in Germany and his and he was a, 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 a an adherent to what we could call neo-Hegelianism, um, and in his great uh, uh, comparative constitutional theory, which he published a decade after Roosevelt was a, not not quite a decade after Roosevelt was a student in the law school, um, he. Uh, no doubt, this is this was the sub this was the substance of what Roosevelt learned. He certainly didn't read the Federalist Papers with him because um, uh, Burgess's approach was completely Germanic, um, uh, and it was this weird combination of neo-Hegelianism joined to a defense of laissez-faire. Which is it's um, it's quite wild, and many of the comments that Roosevelt makes about um, the savages have no claim to any land. There are very similar statements that Burgess himself made. So some of his political theory clearly came from Burgess, um, but Burgess opposed the Spanish-American War. Interestingly, uh, this no one has ever written on this, um, but Burgess um, uh, contacted Roosevelt after he became president and offered his services to him. Um, uh, Roosevelt declined them. Um, uh, but, and while he was in Germany in 1906, he made a comment um, as the, when he was being in, installed in the Theodore Roosevelt Professor Chair um, in Berlin, where Hegel had taught. Uh, he made a comment uh, uh, about Roosevelt, uh, about American foreign policy, and said it's really time to get rid of the Monroe Doctrine. We ought to let more of those Germanic peoples into, uh, into South America. That would really clean things up down there. And this caused a minor diplomatic flap, and all the American newspapers picked it up, and they asked, you know, Roosevelt, well, are you changing American policy? And, you know, you know, and you have to just put a put a muzzle on this guy. Um, but he, uh, in odd ways, he did influence um, uh, Roosevelt. More to the point, I think, about American political thought. Um, he contributed to hero tales, but he didn't write about the political heroes. Cabot Lodge wrote about them. He wrote about the frontiersmen, if you look in, uh, in his contributions there. One of the interesting things is that in the 1890s, he's running all around the country speaking to young college men saying, read the Federalist Papers. This is the greatest work of theory and practice. These guys were really terrific. But when you look at his comments about politics, you wonder if he ever read the Federalist Papers. Um, if he did, his understanding of them was really pretty thin. So he was a, an extraordinarily, he was a, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, uh, he could read a book a night while he was president of the United States to come down the next morning and talk about it. Um, uh, this I did get from Morris, and that sounds true. Um, but I don't think he had much of a sense of what it was that the founders were, were uh, what, what they stood for. So he may not even have known how much he disagreed with them. <laughs> um, uh, you, 
volume work it was widely read in academia at the time. So we, so we shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, in other words, it was open, probably have operated more much like the Mein Kampf with respect to things that happened in foreign policy later on, for example, like uh, the occupation of the Philippines and the treatment of the uh, indigenous peoples there. I mean, anyone reading these six volumes would say, predict how it's going to treat the Philippines. Yes. Well, I, I won't. Um, I, I'm not in a position to comment whether he sounds more like Max Stirner than Nietzsche, but uh, uh, suffice it to say he doesn't sound like Washington or Lincoln. Um, uh, and uh, it, it is the case that you can see in these early histories some of these themes do carry through. I mean, Roosevelt, uh, at the same time, is reviewing um, uh, works because even while he's running for political office, he's a, a, a public intellectual, he's talking about um, uh, how it was the great gift of uh, uh, the, the, Ang the Anglo-Saxons were lucky enough to have reserved the temperate parts of the world for themselves and to have excluded the dangerous alien from our shores. Um, uh, and then, of course, this gets into the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, uh, interestingly, his his argument in the Philippines, though, was was to was not that we should move in there and colonize the Philippines, but that we should somehow lift them up to our level of civilization. So that would be a difference in theory uh, between the way he treated wanted to see the Mexicans or even the Indians treated. Although, again, he has a long footnote in. Um, uh, the Winning of the West, in which, uh, while he's writing The Winning of the West, he's defending the perpetual removal of the Indians, but in his own time, um, he condemns the system of reservations. He tries to bring civil service reform to the reservations so that the teachers won't be hack political appointees. And he even says that we should abolish the whole reservation system and allow the Indians to hold their own land and be treated as individuals. So it, in the practice of his own day, he's far more in keeping with the framers um, individualism and sense of individual rights, property rights, than he is in writing about them where he seems to, to uh, where he clearly does endorse the way that we treated them 60 years earlier.
incapable of exercising their natural, their natural rights. They were more energetic about asserting their rights. They had the traits that made the exercise of rights possible. They would mix their labor with the land to go back to the progressive theories of, of Locke, right? Uh, so in a way, Yes, and he makes that argument in the winning of the West uh, that that's one of the that's one of the grounds on which you can dispossess the Indians that they're not making a good use of the land. So there is clearly that Lockean dimension. Uh, it just seemed that, that um, it was a racialized theory of who could best use these rights. Well, I, again, uh, Roosevelt doesn't go as far as Burgess went, but Burgess said um, in his in his um, uh, 1890 two-volume comparative constitutional theory that the Teutonic peoples were the only people who were capable of self-government. Does, does um, Roosevelt speak of natural rights as in hearing in individuals? Is this part of his... At times, at times he does, which is to say, I mean, th there is this dominant racial theme that doesn't fit with natural rights. And so the best you can say for Roosevelt is that he's incoherent because he's not, he's not, he's certainly not a Chamberlain. He's not, he's not a thoroughgoing racialist. He's a, he's a confused, maybe this is why he should have taken more history, although the history that they were teaching was so crazy. Um, but clearly, you know, he's flying by the seat of his pants here. He's picked up all of the prejudices of his era, but unlike, for instance, the early Woodrow Wilson, he never repudiates the principles of the founders. He just doesn't think about how you would bring those principles, how you would make those principles lie down with the theories that he's expounding. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, if I have understood your presentation correctly, it, it uh, seems to me that it paints a very negative picture and describes lots of negative characteristics about him, which has come somewhat of a surprise to me because most of what I've read and heard before tonight was sort of on the other end of that spectrum. And I guess what I'd like to ask you is, and with all of your background study of Roosevelt in this period, on balance, how do you view his legacy to the country? A net positive or a net negative, or where is it on the scale on balance? That's, that's an excellent question, and it's really not an easy question to answer. Be, uh, be, there's so much that is, that is um, uh, repellent in Roosevelt, and but yet there are there are wonderful things about Roosevelt. Um, uh, 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 you know, but there's now let me think of what they might be. Um, you know, uh, there's a certain crusading zeal. I mean, early on when he enters into politics, what he wants to do is clean up the republic. He wants to, you know, much as we're hearing about today, he wants to root out corruption in the democratic process. He wants to get rid of the spoil system. Um, he wants to fight for sensible reforms. He defends the Constitution. He understands that in democratic societies there is always a danger of demagoguery that has to be guarded against. Um, uh, he is also, un I think, uh, I'll say something that's politically charged as opposed to what I've been doing. <laughs> uh, 
Um, he is, he's the first to say if you want to lead the country, you should, you should be willing to lay down your life and serve in the military. Um, he makes a speech before um, a college republic, a, a college graduates um, uh, in a, repu a, republic, a Republican club of who are who consist of, uh, which consists of college graduates. And he says that the college man ought to be the first, uh, the college man ought to be the first to shed his blood for his country. He's not more privileged and therefore, um, uh, by virtue of his privileges, exempted from uh, his responsibilities. There are statements like that um, that I think are moving, but Roosevelt always gets carried away, and in part, you know, it. it, it I started out thinking the early Roosevelt would be the Roosevelt that I would be more drawn to because he, because the progressive era really is an attempt, an out-and-out out attempt to supplant the principles of the founding. Um, and in this period, Roosevelt thinks he's defending the founding. And what I discovered as I got into this was that even his defense of the founding turned out to be, to put it mildly, um, uh, not much of a defense, or one that was subject, uh, open to many, uh, to my mind, many criticisms. Does that help at all? Let's take our student question yeah, oh, over yes, here. Oh, yes, yes. Are you question. willing to shed your blood? <laughs> um, it seems like um, Roosevelt's sort of this... Um, rebellion against the founding is coming through mostly in his foreign policy, uh, his expansionist policy, sort of the corollary of the Monroe Doctrine, the, his sort of wanting to take the Italian over to World War I, um, his sort of eagerness to, um, to sort of spread this racial um, superiority that you talk about. But I have trouble seeing that same rebellion and those negative influences in his domestic policies as far as they concern sort of the, the traditional um, United States that it was then, um, whether it be sort of through his reforms, his defense of the Constitution, as you said, um, his labor reforms, even though he was very much sort of resistant to those in his early political life. Um, you see him come around to passing child labor laws and eight-hour work days. Um, and so I guess I have trouble sort of seeing on the domestic front how he really did come out as a negative um, influence in regards to the founder's vision of America. That is a that's a good question, and it's a it's a perfect follow up to the question of the gentleman. That's a good question. I have to come back to my tether here. Um, that's a good question, and it's a perfect follow-up to the question asked by the gentleman before you, um, who asked me, you know, what is there to like in Roosevelt? Um, the first thing that I would do is distinguish between two periods in Roosevelt's life. Right now I'm writing on the period when Roosevelt is a reformer. So it's basically the same period in which he's writing these histories, which are uh, less attractive. But again, he fights for real reform. He tries to clean up corruption. He's a partisan Republican. He fights against the Democrats. He won't support even a reform Democrat, um, uh, Grover Cleveland. Um, uh, he is a key force in uh, civil service reform. He's a colorful police commissioner in New York. Um, uh, 
he is Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and um, although one can say that he rushes the nation into the Spanish-American War, he also warns, um, uh, uh, I think correctly, against too much complacency in uh, because the North had won the Civil War, too much complacency that we didn't really need to do anything to rebuild or to build up a navy. Um, and so he, uh, even Henry Pringle, his most critical biographer says that there is a justifiable way in which, again, in foreign policy, he was able to um, get the nation to start thinking about what it needed to do in self-defense. In um, early on, he fought against um, uh, um, uh, the unsanitary conditions uh, that tenement workers. Uh, had to endure um, unsuccessfully in the end. Um, later on, when he becomes president, and then even more in 1912, he fights for all kinds of progressive reforms. Um, I think the quick answer to your question would be, you know, basically he says, gosh, I, I, the way I read the Constitution, I really don't have these powers, but I got to have them. Um, uh, so uh, we have to, you know, I have to find them somewhere. I'm going to have a very expansive reading of the Constitution, and then he keeps moving for more and more constitutional amendments, and then finally he seizes on this um, idea, constitutional amendments take too long, uh, witness the 14th Amendment, they can be misinterpreted, after all, they wind up protecting corporations rather than blacks. Um, uh, so the best thing to do is just get good men. It's always about character. Get them on the court and have them interpret the Constitution the way I want them to. Um, so yes, you get policies that uh, you often like, but there is a, really a disregard for the Constitution, and I think that has a lot in some way to do with his character. I mean, he is, uh, I wouldn't, he is certainly energetic. He can't sit still. He wants things done not now, but five minutes ago. Um, and to a certain extent, the reforms that you admire about him um, are, are carried out uh, with a certain disregard for the Constitution. Interestingly, and I didn't know this, um, uh, uh, I, I wasn't born with this knowledge. I came to it actually rather recently. Henry Cabot Lodge, his best friend of, oh gosh, 40 years, um, wrote to him in 1912 and said, I can't support you for president because I think the measures you're, pro you're proposing are unconstitutional. Ella Hugh Root, his Secretary of State, likewise. Um, Professor Staloff. Uh, I, I love this talk. I was very taken with it. I was, uh, he said he loved this talk. He was very <laughs> taken with it. <laughs> That would be Mr. Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson, who wanted uh, amendments that decided he didn't have time for them, so he violated the Constitution. Also believed in liberty of oh. Anglo-Saxons, right? Mm -hmm. The Anglo-Saxon myth, yes. Very big into uh, the early versions of germ theory. Uh, talked about race, and also thought that the future of America was the West, even if it wasn't part of the United States. Yes. Yes. Uh, interestingly, um, uh, 
in many ways, Jefferson is the most progressive, um, sharing their faults as well as their virtues. Um, in many ways, not all, because he's for limited government and a very limited national government and national frugality. Um, uh, but in other ways, he he most closely approaches many of the things, uh, the other things that uh, uh, Roosevelt admires. Roosevelt hated him, as he wrote in a letter, I cordially despise Jefferson. Um, but only in 1913, after he becomes a full-fledged progressive, does he come to see that there are similarities. John Dewey wrote on uh, uh, Jefferson as the progressive. All you had to do was take natural rights and make them moral rights. Jefferson was the one who said every generation should remake the Constitution the, uh, because it had to take into account progress. Jefferson was the most enthusiastic supporter of progress, the doctrines of Turgot and Condorcet in the 18th century. Um, and yet Roosevelt truly hated him because of his doctrine of limited government, which he didn't share. Uh, he was one of a small group of men at that age who preferred Hamilton to Jefferson. Um, and principally, to go back to the point uh, um, uh, that the student touched, I'm sorry to be the student, uh, touched on uh, just a moment ago, uh, uh, but for their real dereliction in foreign policy. They talked tough to the British. They clamped down an embargo on, um, on uh, uh, British and French goods, and they had no navy to enforce it. And when the Brits came, they burned the capital, and that was unforgivable. Roosevelt thought the war was eminently justifiable. But the failure to prepare for it leads him in every one of these histories, little asides. Jefferson is a monster. <laughs> so very, mostly it's a very practical, consider, uh, practical objection to Jefferson. But there is this uh, underlying similarity. You're absolutely right. Okay, uh, Mark O'Brien, this will have to be our last question. Uh, Roosevelt, uh, 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 Holmes didn't rule the way he wanted on the court. Uh, Ken Kirsch, I'm sure, could <laughs> comment more fully on that. I also, I read something that someone said of him. Who was it that Roosevelt had as much use for the Constitution as a Tomcat has for a marriage license? <laughs> oh, I hadn't heard that. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you, Jeannie. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a reception right outside. Uh, let me just make a commercial announcement uh, before you leave. The, this evening, uh, the Madison program is co-sponsoring with the Woodrow Wilson School a lecture on uh, Lyndon Johnson as Commander-in-Chief by George Herring of the University of Kentucky. It's at 8 p.m. in Dodd's Auditorium in Robertson. And then on uh, Monday, November 20th, next Monday, we have our uh, Herbert W. Vaughn Lecture in America's Founding Principles, also in Dodd's Auditorium over in the Woodrow Wilson School. And we have uh, our own, uh, Princeton's own James McPherson, um, the, uh, emeritus in the History Department. Uh, 
no doubt our greatest uh, living historian of the Civil War period, and we will have uh, him uh, delivering an address at 8 p.m. next Monday. And uh, check our website for other things. Uh, that, that We have a conference on November 30th and December 1st uh, on uh, the journal The Public Interest, which recently ceased publication after 40 years of uh, very influential commentary on uh, American domestic public policy. And we'll have uh, uh, people who have been associated with that journal through all of these years on hand, and including uh, the great Nathan Glazer from Harvard, who joined the journal as editor in, in 1976. He'll be with us, uh, as well as other interesting uh, uh, intellectuals, scholars, uh, and, and so forth. So uh, please check that out, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Thank you.